0: Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 205,
1: disenfranchised communities are both tool and target from information operations. And if we are Ignoring that, we are leaving a gaping hole in our national security. The fact that we are unwilling to talk about race and have counter-narratives and anti-narratives that address that and systemic programs to eradicate that, race will always be weaponized against us. But that distrust that builds between communities also means that a program as you conceive of it, a technology as you conceive of it, a, a tool or mitigation as you conceive of it won't work.
0: Here's the deal with the information security industry in the United States. Our country doesn't have nearly the number of information security professionals that it needs. According to estimates from Cybersecurity Ventures, the shortage of U.S. cybersecurity workers could reach half a million in 2021. The other point worth noting is that the information security professionals we do have are overwhelmingly white and male. ISC2 data shows that Just 24% of cybersecurity workers are women, and just 9% of cybersecurity workers self-identified as African American or Black. That's compared with 13% of the population at large. Just 4% identified as Hispanic, compared with 18% of the overall population. We know that the shortage of information security professionals poses a cybersecurity risk for organizations, Companies across industries struggle to find and then retain information security pros to staff SOCs, manage the security of networks in sectors like government, healthcare, retail, and more. But what about the lack of diversity? Does the overwhelming whiteness and maleness of information security professionals create its own kind of security risk? According to our guest this week, it just might. Camille Stewart is the head of security policy for Google Play and Android at Google. She's also a cyber fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Camille's the author of an essay, Systemic Racism is a Cybersecurity Threat, which was published by the Council of Foreign Relations back in June of 2020. In it, she argues that understanding how systemic racism influences cybersecurity is integral to protecting the American people and defending the country from cyber adversaries. To talk more about this idea, I invited Camille into our studios for a conversation. I started off by asking her about her own journey to the information security field and, as a black woman, whether her life story had any lessons for the industry as it seeks to diversify its ranks.
1: Hi, my name is Camille Stewart. I am a cyber fellow at the Harvard Belfer Center and the head of security policy and election integrity for Android and Google Play at Google.
0: Camille, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. It's great to have you on.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I think a good place to start is, I ask this of a lot of our guests, kind of your your path to information security and some of the work that you're doing right now. Just give a sense of of how you came to work in the information security industry and, and what's on your plate these days.
1: My dad's a computer scientist, and so I was exposed to technology very early and used to sit in the back of his computer science classes, the whole nine. But I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I also had my parents signing contracts very early on. Um, anytime they made a promise, I was, you know, jotting it down. So I, I was looking for a way to combine them.
0: Oh, they were signing contracts with you.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. With <laughs> witnesses and signatures, the whole the whole thing. It was not I a joke. It. I was very serious. Yeah, yeah
0: Nothing left to chance. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. You will remember. Knowing that, but also really loving technology, I, I had to find a way to pull them together. And I spent some time on the Hill, but after law school, went to a cybersecurity company called Sci-Valance, and focused on intellectual property services, managing our intellectual property, but quickly that evolved beyond that. So I co-managed our security operations center, looking at how do we take things down with social media companies that were exploding at that point? How do we take down things that are not only infringing on their brand, but also pose physical security threats, corporate security threats, executive threats, all kinds of security, and exploring other service lines and options, engaging on international issues like the new GTLDs, which was when dot something that wasn't com net dot gov launched and, and how companies could engage in that, how they could leverage it and what threats were posed. So I spent you know, about five years there looking across a number of different issues and enjoying wearing multiple hats. That's the joy of a small tech company. But then I got reached out to by the Obama administration to come and be part of standing up an office called the Cyber Infrastructure and Resilience Policy Office at of the Department of Homeland Security. It sits in headquarters and looks across all of the components on cyber policy issues. So five have really strong equities. At the time, it was MPPD. Now it's CISA, the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency. Secret Service has a strong cybersecurity mission around financial sector, science and technology and then the and then HSI and really pulling together from all of these discrete parts of the organization what the department's perspective was on cyber issues leading a number of cyber policy efforts including things like PPD 41 that talks about how the government coalesces around a significant cyber incident and i focused on our international portfolio but a lot of the things that touch the private sector and election security so Encryption and a bunch of other things focused on our relationship with Israel, Five Eyes. It was a great time. And then
0: (laughs) a big big portfolio, as they say in the government sector. Yes,
1: exactly. A small office with a big portfolio. And and so then I transitioned to uh, consulting after that. I thought, you know, here's a good way to continue to support that mission, but be kind of back on the private sector side of things. And I led some tech innovation scouting for Deloitte. I led Some election security work, and really focused on security and privacy related issues for DoD and DHS. But you know, consulting is its own beast, and I decided eat where you kill. Yeah, it is its own beast. It is not that blend that I thought it was. It's an enabling function, an important one, but an enabling function. So I wanted to get back to kind of being more hands on and the piece of the puzzle that I felt like I was missing with big tech, especially because I had done some research on things like national security related tech and IP being exfiltrated through the courts and some other cyber and national security related topics, And so big tech was the the vantage point that I, I wanted to get that 360 view on technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, so I transferred to Google and now I lead security policy and election integrity for the mobile part of the business. And I chose that part because it felt like the small tech environment within this big behemoth and gave me kind of the ability to build something, be a little scrappier, wear a couple different hats, but also have the resources of a large entity. And uh, and you asked what I've been working on. I mean, a lot of it has been election election integrity work. <laughs> Are you
0: specifically within the the group that does Android and, and mobile mobile platforms or and and kind of explain what your piece of the, of the puzzle looks like? Because Google, obviously, a large company, a lot of different products and technologies. So what particular issues vis-a-vis elections are, were you were you working on?
1: Google has a federated security model. There's a core security group, but then also different products have their own security teams. I sit within trust and safety, though, because the policy teams run across. And while folks are directly allocated to a platform, we sit in trust and safety so we can use the force, you know, force multiplier that is pulling together all those minds around efficiencies and looking at problems at a larger scale. So I sit in trust and safety, but for all intents and purposes, I sit within the Google Play and Android parts of the business. And my piece of that is, you know, Google had a big focus on making sure that it was not leveraged. To impede free and fair elections. And it was my job to bring together the talent that we have across operations and a number of different parts of the business to focus in on that problem from this specific lens and make sure that Google Play and Android weren't abused in those ways during the course of not only this election, but all global elections. So it's an ongoing program and support that focuses in on this specific problem set Leveraging the skills that we have across the business, but in a very targeted way.
0: Camille, you came onto our radar as we putting the show together because a really great article you wrote for Council of Foreign Relations it was a while ago, it was in June, June 2020. But you talked about the lack of diversity in information security as a cybersecurity threat. And you made some really interesting points, one of which was, first of all, just about the way that problems like disinformation move through minority and immigrant communities differently than they do maybe in the in the public at large. And in some ways you need kind of boots on the ground and eyes in those communities to even see the, that phenomena. But it's a fascinating article. Could you just kind of reprise it for us and talk a little bit about what points you were making in that piece?
1: Yes, thank you. So in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Ahmad Aubrey and others, uh, many people were looking across The places they work, the lives they live, trying to figure out how systemic racism was showing up and how they could take part in dismantling it and really conceptualizing what their role is in that. And a lot of the work done in cyber around issues of diversity has focused on workforce. And while workforce is an important component and is the conduit to the solutions around a deficit around diversity, it is not the only issue. Ignoring issues of race. In the technology we build and how it permeates through systems and how bias develops in people and how bias works its way through implementation processes is a huge gap for us. Diversity impacts efficacy and if we are not understanding how technology moves to different communities so to your what to a whatsapp example You know, immigrant communities use WhatsApp in ways that are very different from other folks. It's how you stay connected to a community beyond these shores, and the people that you're talking to are trusted. So when they forward that, you know, chain letter esque advice about COVID and how you're supposed to take care of yourself and prevent getting COVID, you take that with a level of authority that is very different from somebody else who got that same forward because it came from your aunt from your cousin from somebody who really is important to you and so it it manifests itself in the information space quite a bit because we saw it in the 2016 elections and we saw it in the 2020 elections as latino communities and black communities were targeted disenfranchised communities are both tool and target from information operations and if we are ignoring that we are leaving a gaping hole in our national security. The fact that we are unwilling to talk about race and have counter narratives and anti-narratives that address that and systemic programs to eradicate that race will always be weaponized against us. But that distrust that builds between communities um, also means that a program as you conceive of it, a technology as you conceive of it, a, a tool or mitigation as you conceive of it won't work. If you think about See something, say something with DHS. While that's not a cybersecurity program, if you were to create such a campaign in the cybersecurity space, folks don't trust the entity enough to engage in that level of reporting because of issues of systemic racism. So if we ignore that, we think, all right, everybody's going to see something and give us a call, but they're not because they think that the outcome of that call might be worse than dealing with whatever that problem is on you their own. You
0: could end up dead, right. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And then how we relate on an international scale, right? Other countries, we are holding them to task for human rights violations and have gaping holes. And, you know, as we seek to help countries build their infrastructure, build, you know, certs in response to cyber incidents, as we seek to advance the international discourse around cyber norms and all of these other things, our ability to address systemic racism, our ability to discuss systemic racism will continue to be impediments to progress in those venues as well. So we are doing ourselves a disservice as practitioners to ignore these issues, both of race, of gender, all of the the bigotry issues, because they are a direct impediment to the efficacy of the work we're doing. And so I wanted to highlight for folks that this is not just a moral conundrum, this is not just a workforce issue. You and your teams are not as effective, as not, are not as able to address the threat without a diverse lens and being open to discussions and issues of race as they manifest themselves in your organizations, the institutions that we work in, et cetera.
0: Really great points you know, often with this, you you end up in kind of a chicken and egg discussion, right? Which is sort of what needs to happen first. I mean, your life story, your father was in computer science. So, you know, you ended up being comfortable around computers. That's a fairly common story. When you look more, more broadly at the industry and, and the pipeline into information security, there are not Uh, Many people of color, there are, you know, impediments at the K through 12 level, getting young black men and women with the skills they need to go into, you know, graduate degrees or or college education and end up in into the information security field. I mean, there's a constrained pipeline just in general, but it's particularly acute in communities of color but that's a sort of boil the ocean problem how do you how do we as a society solve that problem so that we at the other end can have a more diverse workforce in information security and are there any lessons in your own experience
1: so access and exposure will solve a multitude of our problems it'll it'll solve the lack of diversity problem but it'll also create a populace of more informed users who are better able to adopt our security tools. So investing in K through 12 education around cyber hygiene, digital literacy, and all of those things will pay dividends. So yes, it's a longer term solution. Um, and and folks tend to be like, well, we need something now, but we have to start somewhere and in investing in that. So that'll that'll be key. But also, you know, I started a, a campaign with. Lauren Zabrick called hashtag share the mic in cyber to amplify the voices of Black practitioners in cyber because folks feel like there aren't Black practitioners already playing in this space. And there are, which is amazing. They are doing great work. They are across industries and sectors. They have a myriad of skill sets. The inner cyber circle, being aware of them, helps give them a platform to show students that there is an opportunity to be successful in this space, to thrive in this place, that people look like them are in this space, can correct the misconception that there are no people of color or black people specifically working in cyber. And the pipeline problem is a holistic one. You can't just think about how do we get scholarships to different communities and educational programs. If they, if people do not see people that look like them in these fields, they often will not enter them particularly people at all levels. So we need to be promoting people to leadership levels within their organization. We need to be investing in all of those things. But to go back to the Share the Mic and Cyber campaign, the real purpose is to demonstrate that each individual has a role in that. So whether you have authority in your organization to promote people, to elevate the folks internally, or you are a junior or an individual contributor who can just you know, expound upon, amplify the work of your colleague in a meeting on social media, whatever venue is appropriate, all of those things are powerful. Access and exposure works both from a let's show students and those who um, might come into this space that there is a place for them here, but also showing people that are already here and we trying to be here, that there is a place for them by lending your voice to amplify theirs, by, you know, turning to action, finding ways to mobilize your desire to create space. So everyone has a moment in their meetings where someone else did a really great job that you can amplify or that you can send a note after or that you are in a room where someone else isn't and you make clear that they should be. Those little things are big things. And and so one of the things I want people to walk away From this conversation with is understanding that they too have a power, an individual power, similar to how the actions of an individual in cybersecurity are connected to the nation and to the international security is very much the same way for this problem. You can, from your sphere of influence, hold your leadership accountable, hold your organizations accountable, hold the industry accountable, and use your voice to amplify the voices of others.
0: We'll link to the Share the Mic and Cyber, really great program. You got some pretty notable information security executives and subject matter experts to, to kind of partner up with people. So it was pretty impressive. How does that program work? Like how long does the relationship last for? And kind of how do you, how do you measure success, I guess, in some ways of, of those types of mentorships?
1: Yeah, so the program works. We pair cyber allies, so anyone who works in the space that has a platform on Twitter or LinkedIn with Black practitioners. And on predetermined day, the practitioner has shared a bunch of tweets or a LinkedIn post about their career, what they work on, their feelings about the cybersecurity industry, their experience in the cybersecurity industry, about their person's journey and their career. It exposes new Communities to these practitioners, it shares their stories in a way that is very candid. And then on the margins of that, after the we we had two so far, and the next one's on March nineteenth, focused on Black women in security and privacy. We started to develop organic programming. So the first one, a scholarship fund was created. One of the pairs decided that they wanted to that the Cyber Ally wanted to help the practitioner fund the certification she needed for the next phase of her career. And when that funding far exceeded what she needed that was opened up to everyone and has continued to be part of the program during the second cycle in october we also did a lot of programming with other um, organizations within the security space google some pr organizations discernible have partnered with us to bring programmatic programming to the community and we also make sure to keep everyone connected via a google group so we are hoping for sustained engagement, sustained connection, and as we implement programming for next classes and cohorts, people can participate again. But also, they have opportunity to join the programming around the event, even if they don't attend the um, or participate in the campaign. So we're looking forward to March 19th because this specific focus on Black women in celebration of Women's History Month will be the first time we've you know narrowed the group a little bit more, and we hope to have even more programming than before. Scholarship opportunities, programming, and any other creative means to amplify the work of these practitioners.
0: I spoke with one of the founders of of Black Girls Hack, who was talking about some of the practical impediments to people getting into, and you mentioned certifications, and that came up as like a really big one that, that wouldn't have occurred to me, like how how pricey just credentialing is in information security. and. What an obstacle that is, particularly for people who are either starting out or contemplating a career shift, but there's this kind of huge upfront hurdle of needing to pay for these credentials, whether it's CISSP or Certified Ethical Hacker or one of these kind of certifications that you need to apply for a lot of jobs. It hadn't occurred to me, but it strikes me that, that while we are talking about the need for increased diversity and to bring people into the industry, regardless of, you know, their race or background, there are practical impediments that are being erected or have been erected to doing that um, that would tend to limit it to people who probably are just people of means.
1: It's a consistent problem. I mean, the certifications, many of which require you to have some years of experience to be entry-level certifications, are already just a problematic piece of <laughs> how the industry is, is structured. But yes, the financial impediment is significant. These certifications are costly. They add up very quickly. And if you think of that coupled on top of if you went to get undergraduate or graduate level education and have student loan debt that is significant, which most minorities do, the compounded financial burden of entering into this space and many others, but into this space specifically, is no small thing. Um, And As we think about how to open up cybersecurity to new voices and new perspectives, which is much needed to your point at a base level because we have a number of cybersecurity jobs that need to be filled, um, but also so that we are our most effective and we are bringing the best to bear, which is our diversity on these really tough challenges, we are going to have to break down some of these artificial walls and barriers.
0: And and then there's just the part of this that sort of as anybody does when they're starting out in a career or thinking about a career of looking at it and saying, you know, am I welcomed here? Right. I mean, is this a, a, a industry or a field that is, that has its arms open for people like me, or am I actually getting the, the opposite message that I'm not welcome here? Right. That strikes me as a harder problem to solve. <laughs> Cause it's about getting people who are already well entrenched in an industry to change your thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing we've learned is this is not a easy problem at all. <laughs> but having hard conversations is the start. We have to be open to having discussions that make us uncomfortable, um, to learning more about the experiences of others. And as we do that, those things will become easier. Hopefully people will start ex- exercising their empathy muscles and we'll be able to put our heads together around some of these tough challenges.
0: When we talk about sort of how the lack of diversity really impacts the work of cybersecurity, and I was watching this like, I think it was Netflix documentary that was on a British serial killer, like the Yorkshire Ripper. And like it's which is just the type of thing I like to watch on Netflix when everybody else has gone to bed. <laughs> but it was a really interesting documentary because really, what it was about wasn't so much this horrible serial killer who murdered all these women, but about the law enforcement team that was hunting this person and how basically they were completely blinded because it was a a completely homogenous group of like you know middle-aged white british men who jumped to a whole lot of conclusions about who this killer was and what his motivation was you know that he was obsessed with prostitutes which ended up not being true at all and you know all these other things and you know that the type of women he was murdering were not you know nice women you know <laughs> And there were just all these prejudices that ended up delaying the capture of this, of this serial killer, which ended up being, he was kind of captured by accident in the end. And it got me thinking about cybersecurity and, and how practically the same type of homogeneity might impact the work that we do, you know, that cybersecurity professionals do, even in the context of, you know, a specific incident response. Do you think that is a phenomenon? Do you think that that plays out in some ways? Do you think we're there is a sort of blindness out there now, just given how weighted this industry is in in one particular way?
1: Yes, between groupthink and the inability to see something you've never experienced or to step outside of your own lens, um, we have a hundred percent suffered from missing things that could have been surfaced by someone with a different perspective or coming at it with you know a lens that allowed them to step outside of you know our geographic bubble our racial or ethnic bubble our gender bubble so many things and we've seen that across a number of different parts of our identity in a number of different ways and we've seen it in studies of the efficacy of businesses when they have diverse boards and when they have diverse leadership they are able to be more innovative, and that innovation would come into play in how we respond and how we identify threats and vulnerabilities. Yes,
0: you know one of the things that we're one of the things that we're contending with right now. We're all kind of still recovering from the uh, solar wind, solar storm um, hack, and you know the huge impact that that had in the federal space. I know you obviously spent a lot of time working in the federal space as part of the Obama administration. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what your take on that incident is. And, you know, we're in this position now. We've got a new administration in that is making a lot of the right sounds about cybersecurity and emphasizing cybersecurity. What changes you think need to, you know, need to take place so that we don't end up, you know, five years down the road with some other, with the next, you know, it seems like five years ago, it was like OPM and then now it's solar winds and you just worry, you know, five years down the road, it's just going to be something else, you know. What are your thoughts? I mean, having worked so closely within the federal government on, on these issues.
1: So to your point, I think we are at a moment where we can reevaluate with the codification of the national cyber director and naming of Ann Neuberger and others to key roles. We are in a moment where we can reevaluate how the federal government Aligns around cybersecurity, and that underlying work, that foundational work, will help as we seek to get more funding for CISA, for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, as they seek to build out tools like Einstein, which you know uh, watches network traffic and flags malware based on already known signals. We need to get behavioral signals, so something like a Solar Winds could be caught because. That malware was not already known, so the signal wouldn't have been flagged. We need to have digital supply chain transparency and security requirements. We can start with federal contractors, so we can pilot how industry requirements will land. But we need to do the work to have a software bill of materials and a hardware bill of materials where people actually, organizations actually understand where each component part, where each piece of code came from so they can respond when a vulnerability is identified in a more efficient manner. We have heard some folks like Alex Damos talk about a national transportation safety type board that would collect all of the information after a breach, synthesize it into lessons learned and distribute it. I think that we have that organization It's CISA, but they need that mandate and they need the funding to be able to do that. And they can push that information to the interagency and the private sector and we need to fund programs that allow for innovation in the US so folks have more choice about the component parts that they in software that they choose and also fund the things that are supposed to catch and elevate foreign investment in US companies which end up in US infrastructure so nothing is really new these are all problems we all <laughs> knew about but we need to invest in the policy work and getting the funding to build these things out and really focus on our cyber defenses and our cyber resilience rather than just persistent engagement and how we go out and find these threats rather than building some resilience because these are inevitable. We tell that to companies all the time. We tell it to individuals all the time. And we need to be prepared accordingly to bounce back and to defend ourselves as threats evolve and cyber espionage is not new. And whether this cyber operation turns out to be just espionage, as it points to now, or something more, building out our defenses and our resilience capabilities are only going to benefit us.
0: At some level, you want the federal government to be able to do best of breed, right, and choose the best tools for the job regardless. On the other hand, in this case... Maybe there should have been more scrutiny. You know, maybe there maybe there should have been a longer runway to get those changes out or to assess, you know, patches as they're deployed. But I don't know. It's hard to point the finger of blame, you know, on that one. It's like, okay, you got a signed update from a reputable vendor. And what are you going to do about that? <laughs> it's got a backdoor in it. You know, like, how are you going to catch that?
1: Yeah. It's definitely one of those things where, There were a bunch of people who coulda, shoulda, woulda, maybe coulda caught it, but you can't be mad at any one piece of that pie that they didn't catch it, but we should be thinking about how we make each of those stronger so that if we're not proactively engaging to discover that this operation is happening, we are defending ourselves such that this doesn't happen. And we we just need to continue to iterate on the infrastructure we've already built and the tactics that we've already employed Mm -hmm. um, so that we are better suited to respond to threats like this.
0: Last question. You know, the election is over, at least the the most recent election. (laughs) There's another one coming up in a couple of years. What's on your docket? What's on your agenda for 2021? What are some of the big problems that you're going to be tackling?
1: So I'm going to continue the Share the Mic and Cyber work. I am working on a research project around human-centered security and how aspects of your identity impact how you adopt security and privacy tools. I will keep working on the things, the security and privacy and misinformation related things I'm doing at Google. And I I mean, those are top of mind right now. I'm sure something else will pop up. I'm on a couple of boards around these issues, International Foundation for uh, Electoral Systems. So looking at supporting democracies as they are more secure and and support free and fair elections. Girl security, which is investing in young girls learning national security, including cybersecurity. So supporting those missions as well is really important to me.
0: Camille, that was a really great interview. And it was you're doing a lot of really amazing work. So I'm really glad we had a chance to get you on a podcast. And I, I hope to have you on again.
1: I appreciate it. Yes, I look forward to it.
0: Camille Stewart is the head of security policy for Google Play and Android at Google. She's also a cyber fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs.